Walter Omar Cohan is full professor at the State University of Rio de Janeiro, Brazil, and researcher at the National Council for Scientific and Technological Development. He is also past president of the International Council of Philosophical Inquiry with Children, and has authored or edited more than 50 books. His publications in English include Philosophy in Childhood, The Inventive Schoolmaster, Childhood, Education, and Philosophy, and his most recent release, Paolo Freire, which we discuss in this episode. In part one of the episode, we'll cover the history and background of Paolo Freire, including a discussion on his literacy campaign and why his work is still relevant today, before tackling a variety of topics around education, philosophy, and language. A contemplative and enlightening conversation, this is definitely one episode you won't want to miss. Take a listen. Welcome to the Bloomsbury Academic Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Morofsky, and today I'm speaking with Walter Omar Cohan, the author of the biography on Paolo Freire, one of the most renowned educational thinkers of our time. Thanks for being on the show, Walter. Thank you, Rebecca, for inviting me. I was born in Argentina. There I studied philosophy. Then I went to Mexico to do my PhD. And afterwards, I, do, I did some doctoral studies in France, in Paris 8, and in Vancouver, Canada, in, at the University of British Columbia. And since 1997, I live and work in Brazil. In fact, I arrived to Brazil the 7th of May, 1997, just five days after Paulo Freire was dead. And I stayed for some few years at Brasilia. And since 2002, I am based at Rio, at the State University of Rio, where I teach philosophy of education. And as Argentinian or Latin America, I've been always reading and interested in the work of Pablo Freire, but it's since the last, I would say, five years that I felt more and more compelled to write something about Pablo Freire because of the very strange place he was put by the Brazilian actual government and some conservative movements where Paulo Freire, there were demonstrations where Paulo Freire was posed as the enemy of Brazilian education, which is really strange. So I thought I should finally put into words many ideas I have been developing through the years. For those who are entirely new to Paulo Freire, could you tell us briefly who he was and give a summary of his life and work? Sure. Paulo Freire was, in fact, he was formed as a lawyer. Then he dedicated his whole life to education. He would be making 100 years next September 19. So he was born in 1921. He was born in the northeast of Brazil, in the city of Recife, which is a very, let's say, the most poor region of the country. And in 1963, he came up with a national campaign of literacy, because in this region, it's the region where there were, and there still are, 
the most part of the illiterate people in Brazil, millions of illiterate people. So he started with a local experiment of literacy that in something like 40 days could make, could teach people to read and write. So he started with the 300 adults in a region where there was a 75% of illiterate people in this small city of Angicos. And then he translated this into a national campaign or plan of literacy. But just when the plan was beginning, the dictatorship raised. And so Paulo Freire was first put into prison. And then he got, he had to go to exile. And he lived for some few years in Chile. He lived for almost a year at the United States, at Cambridge. And then he lived for some few years at Switzerland. And in 1980, he returned to Brazil. And there he had a, a very complex life. He was secretary of education at the city of Sao Paulo. And he continued traveling because he, since 1970, when he published The Pedagogy of the Oppressed, he became a very well-known educator everywhere. He developed a number of literacy campaigns in mainly in Portuguese-speaking countries of Africa, former colonies of Portugal, also some in some Latin American countries, but he is very well-known everywhere, like in Asia, in Japan, in China. I had the opportunity while I was working in, in British Columbia, in Canada, to, to have lots of Chinese teachers and students. And Paulo Freire is also very well-known in, in China, Africa, Korea, everywhere. Yeah, I mean, as you said, I think Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed is probably the most widely read book of educational theory ever and is the third most cited book in the social sciences, what I found out. What relevance does it have to you and Freire's work more broadly? What relevance does it have today in today's social and political climate? And, and why do you think it remains as popular today as it ever has? Well, I think that today is a very, we are living a very particular moment in different parts of the world. And as you said, Paulo Freire, Pedagogy of the Oppressed, is the third book more quoted in social studies and the first in education. So I think it's, this can be understood because of several reasons. On, on the one side, I think that a book that has such kind of life, a book that turns to be a classic, it is because it, it speaks not only to its time, but to people of different times. So I think some of the main ideas of the pedagogy of the oppressed, mainly the idea that education is a political act, is something that uh, speaks to educators of all times and of all places. And especially how to, to think and how to practice this political act that is education. And this is particularly meaningful today because we are living a very conservative time, at least in some countries. I think that Brazil is a good example and U.S. at least till some months ago was also a good example where public policies in education 
are following a ne neoliberal path, which means that they are not taking too much care of the people who, who most need them. And also, which means that public education is not seen as a priority. And even education is not seen as a right, but as a deal. These, all these things put the educator in a very difficult position. And the educator is crossed by many different uh, duties, obligations, and also a sense that the meaning and sense of education has been lost or needs to be reconsidered, rethought. So Paulo Freire could be a wonderful interlocutor for these questions, for these problems, and his books might help all of us who work in education to problematize our practices and to think again and again, what are we doing education for? So I can think of a few examples in an American context, but I'm wondering what you mean when you say education is a political act, because I, I think that you're totally right, but I wonder what that, what that actually means to you when it's applied. Sure. Well, let's remember the origin of the word political or politics that has to do with the Greek polis, which means community. So that each time you practice education, you affirm a kind of community you are being part of, you want to be part. In other words, you exercise power in the relationships you have with others so that you directly or indirectly affirm an equalitarian community, a democratic community, or maybe an authoritarian community. For Paulo Freire, the way an educator exercises power can be understood in, in two big uh, possibilities. One is the traditional, what he calls the banking education. That's when the educator assumes a place where she needs to deposit something that she has and the student does not have. And this has very inconvenient political consequences. The other possibility is what Paulo Freire called a problematizing education or emancipatory education, where the educator considers herself as an equal to the student. She doesn't exercise power from up to down, but she opens up the educational setting to a conversation or to a dialogue where she learns from the student and also the student learns from her, but on an equally based relationship in a community, let's say, where everyone is considered capable of learning anything if we educators give them the appropriate conditions to do so. So I guess that sort of embraces the model of different kinds of intelligences and not subscribing to this super regimented, hierarchical, top-down approach, as you were saying, in the classroom. Yeah, exactly, because there's usually a confusion between equality and difference. Equality is not opposed to difference. Equality is opposed to inequality. So the different intelligence, in order to be able to emerge, to democratically emerge, they need 
an equally based context where their voice can be listened as equal and, and not as an inferior. So difference, in a sense, emerges from equality. Different voices, different intelligence, different ways of being in the world, different cultures, different projects of life. So equality, political equality, is like a condition for interesting difference to emerge. And do you think that this has... What do I, uh, kind of lost my train of thought with this. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I guess there's this idea that when you use hierarchies in the classroom, they sort of rearticulate themselves outside of the classroom, that it kind of replicates the hierarchies of other kinds of institutions in our world, right? But I'm wondering, so, I mean, obviously, Freire had very specific ideas about the different kinds of pedagogical practices that he would determine either egalitarian or authoritarian. What do you think he would say about how his theories are being used today? Are, are we reinventing and building on his ideas in a way that honors his work? Or, or do you feel like people are muddying his legacy? In a way. Let me just comment a little before on your being lost, which is very interesting because that also has to do with Freire and what he calls the difference between a pedagogy of the question and a pedagogy of the answer. Because usually we think education as solving problems, as giving answers to questions, and the student usually we think that as she doesn't know, she questions, and teachers, as we know, we think we know, we think we need to answer. But Freire thinks education quite the opposite. He says that's a pedagogy of the answer, and what we need is a pedagogy of the question. So we do not only or mainly need to solve problems. Of course, there's a level where we need to solve problems. But what we mainly need in education is to pose problems. So to create questions, to invent questions, to discover questions, and to end an educational conversation with more questions than we had at the beginning. So this, this that happened to you of being lost, for me, it's a very nice and interesting sign that something educational is happening. Because <laughs> when something educational happens, you begin to, questions arise, and you, you feel a kind of loss that you need to find our place. If we are very sure of everything, and if we know everything and we are not lost, we will not find anything. We will not search. We will not discover. So this is what I would say Freire would call a philosophical pedagogy of the question. So a pedagogy that helps people feeling lost in order to find and to search where they really want to go and how they really want to live. So now I, I am a little lost about your question. Yeah, I, I remember now. You were, yeah, you were asking what Freire would think about. Well, I think that's, it's interesting because Freire said, as you know, from the question, Freire said, if you want to be Freireans, you don't have to follow me. You need to reinvent me. But this is a kind of paradox because you realize that to say this, I, I already had to repeat Freire. I have to quote him. So we need him. We need, in a sense, to read him, but also it's a paradox. We need to read him, but we need not to stay, not to follow. And that's what I have tried to do, which is not easy because there are so many things that have been written about Freire every day, every 
week there's a new book, a new thesis, a new dissertation. But that's what I have tried to put myself as a kind of duty so as not to repeat neither Freire, neither any reading of Freire. And I try to invent, in a sense, a new Freire, if that is possible to be said. Do you have any sort of insights on some of the other books that have come out recently on Freire, though? Well, in fact, I am most sensitive to the um, Brazilian context. My book was originally published in Portuguese in 2019, at a time where Bolsonaro was elected in 2018. And as you know, the educational program of Bolsonaro says that the main aim of his program is to expurg the ideology of Paulo Freire from Brazilian education. So coincidentally, in 2019, because we, as you can imagine, I, I didn't prepare the book in just one year, so I have been working on it for some years. But coincidentally, it came, it was born at this time where Paulo Freire was put in this place in the political scene. And it was published contemporary with another book on a very well-known Freire scholar here, Sergio Haddad which is called Paulo Freire, The Educator. And it was interesting because here in Brazil, both books got a lot of attention because in a sense, in two different ways, they give reasons to understand how, in a sense, nonsense was this idea of trying to expel Paulo Freire from Brazilian education. In a sense, because it is uh, Paulo Freire has never really been in Brazilian education. So it's a kind of nonsense to try to expert someone who, who is not there. If Brazilian education were freighting, we wouldn't have still more than 20 million of illiterate people as we have. And on another sense, it's impossible because Paulo Freire lives in the bodies and in the lives of hundreds of thousands of educators in a way that it's not with the law or with the norm that you are going to take him out of Brazilian education. It's interesting that you are talking about the idea of exporting Freire outside of Brazil, um, because I was wondering how I was thinking about this idea of, of translation and how much of the context of Brazil we've lost through the various translations of his work. And, and do you feel like it matters? Do you feel like people outside of Brazil have a very fundamentally different relationship to this person? Yeah, well, I think that's a great question. And as all great questions, it's very difficult to answer. Because in a sense, when I read, for example, when I read Freire in English, I think it's another Freire. I don't think it's the same. Which doesn't mean that it's uh, necessarily worse or or better. It's just different. It's another phrase. And I think that has to do, obviously, with translation, with any translation, but especially in the case of Freire, because he works a lot with words. And he, in his work, the wording is very meaningful. He has a very careful and precise use of words. And there are some words and some relationship to language that is simply not being able to be translated. So this might be seen as a loss, but at the same time, you have to replace this with another word. And so 
I think that this brings difference, and and I really think that Freddy is, is a different Freddy in the different. I also read him in other languages that like Italian, French, Spanish, and it seems that in a thinker, in an educator like like Freddy, which makes such a careful use of language, each translation brings a new Freddy, and, and this is. Also, the case of our book, my book, that we have to to translate it now into English in Bloomsbury. And as I also know English, not perfect, as you might realize, but as I, I can understand and read in English. And the translator was a very, were two very and deep colleagues, Jason Wozniak and Sam Rocha. Like we work collectively and we discuss a lot how to translate many expressions, either from Freire and or either from myself, because I also work a lot with language and I also give a lot of importance to word. And for example, from the title, the title itself of my book in Portuguese is a little different from the title in English. In Portuguese, a literary translation of the title of the book would be Paulo Freire more than ever. And a philosophical biography is a subtitle in Portuguese and tends to be in the title in English. And we discuss a lot to include or not more than ever or more than never. It came in, in some case. And the English committee decided not to include it, that it would be clearer and more than ever might bring some confusion to the reader. You know how it's difficult to translate because in the book, time is, is at the core of the book. So if you could ask me which is the main theme that you work with Freire, I could say that time. I could say the time of education, which is the time of education. And more than never, more than ever, it's very interesting because they introduce two very different kinds of times. More than never is any time, because never is no time, zero time. So one second is more than never. One hour, one day, any time is more than never. But what is the time of more than ever? Seems to be an impossible time, because ever is all the time. So what time can be more than ever? Well, I think that this is the time of education, a time that seems impossible, but is needed to dream or to hope in education. And this is, I think, a distinction that Paulo Freire offers, that education, there's one time of education, that one that has to do with the educational institutions, the time of the clock, the time of the calendar, the time of the programs, of the syllabus of the educational systems. But I think that he also helps us think that if you stay in this time, you really do not educate anyone. That real, deep, true education has to do with offering another time, which seems to be impossible, like more than ever, but turns to be the time education, real education takes place, the time of utopia, the times of dreams, the times of revolution, the times of another world. <laughs>